here. <laughs> One way or the other, <laughs> we're here. Well, let's pray and we'll get going for this morning. So thanks for being here. Um, there's hand, handouts rolling around somewhere. There's some more on the table out in the foyer if you don't have one. So uh, let's do pray this morning. Father God, we do thank you for uh, all you provide to us as a church, uh, for the ability for us to be able to gather each Sunday and to be able to worship and praise you. And Lord, we even do thank you for the rhythms of life in our church, to be able to take the break for the summer, be refreshed and take time away. But Lord, it is good to be back, to be studying uh, different topics, to have our kids studying your word again just as a church. So, Lord, we do praise you for the ways that you bless us. Even we think of just the rich resources of this building uh, and just the ability to do the things that we do on a weekly basis. So, Lord, I do uh, just praise and worship you this morning as we begin to look at our Sunday school series for the next uh, several weeks. So, Lord, we do lift this all up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, we got... As we get back in, we got multiple technical difficulties, like internet's down, can't print things off. So, you know, here we are. We're going to figure it out. Uh, but uh, glad you're able to be here this morning. So one of the things that we uh, have liked to do just over the year is just break up our Sunday school into kind of different sections and studies. And so this year we have uh, several different studies we're going to do. We're going to start off this year just looking at doctrine. And this isn't like every single doctrine. Uh, as you get into doctrine, one of the things you'll recognize is sometimes they'll have these, these small little systematic theologies that are like 800 pages long that say, introduction to Christian theology. So <laughs> we're not going to go to that degree. I'm uh, sorry to say, though you might be relieved that we're just going to do 12 weeks. And so we're going to hit some major doctrines and just spend some time on some of the essential things in the Christian faith and thinking through application and theology. Uh, and there is an importance just to doctrine as we think about these. The, an, an essential nature within the church to good doctrine, to understanding doctrine, to living in light of doctrine. And so this is something we want to learn and continue to foster within our church, and within our lives, in our homes. This is not just a heady academic topic that we should say, let's put this on the shelf and forget about it. But we want to be pulling that book down regularly and saying, what are these things? How do they influence the way we think and engage in culture? These are essential things. If you look at your handout uh, quote there from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, he says this, We live in an age in which we do not hear very much about doctrines. And there are some people who are even foolish enough to say that they do not like them which seems to me to be a very pathetic and regrettable attitude. And I just love how, <laughs> how straight he shoots with people. This is uh, one of the things he said as he did his own series, which was like, uh, I think it was more like into the 30s and 40 week long series on doctrine. But that, that was short for him. Uh, he would often do much longer than that. And Thomas Watson, one of uh, just the Puritans in his uh, famous book, The Body of Divinity, he speaks of doctrine this way for us. He says, it is the duty of Christians to be settled in the doctrine of the faith. And he's not saying that just because he believes it. He is pulling this from rich and robust exegesis of Scripture, that he believes that this is essential, that we understand doctrine and that we are settled in it, that we don't have uh, just this wavering nature of what do we think and believe about doctrine. So as you get into this, there's somewhat of an intimidation to studying theology, studying doctrine. As you look at some of these books that we'll go into later, even something like this, this is um, fairly brief when it comes to doctrines in some senses. Like this, uh, they used to write many, many uh, books, and there'd be volumes and volumes just on theologies. And this is not really the way we live anymore. We will kind of want very short snippets now, but uh, we should love doctrine, we should understand it, but there is a hurdle to en entering in because of this. And we, can, we can recognize this to say, if I can't read all of it, I don't even want to enter in. Um, and as you enter in, one of the things you recognize is there's a lot of terminology that just is difficult. There's a lot of terminology that we don't necessarily want to figure out or don't even know how to figure out. Uh, so just as we 
start to look at this, there's a couple terms that we'll just define. Uh, one is just theology. What is this? As we think about doctrine as we, and we are doing this work, theology uh, quite literally is just the study of God. We are studying God. We are starting to look at the things God has said, the ways that God has spoken, the way he has engaged with us, even things that we might even see in the world around us. There's many aspects to theology. We can even look at the way that God has been studied, and this is still theology. And so we start to think about God this way. Uh, Another term that we often see when we think about doctrine, in some senses, is systematic theology. So this is... Um, for those of you who don't know, this is kind of more of a uh, way of starting to bring topics to the Bible and say, what does the, all of the Bible have to say about this topic? And usually this is driven by questions we have. We say, I see something in culture, in the world around me, and I want to know what it says about God, for instance. I want to know what it says about man. I want to know what it says about sin. And we go on and on and on. And this is done in a rather systematic way. And oftentimes, systematic theology does kind of land. It's not just a study. They land at, this is what we actually think, which we'll get into later, what what we're defining there. But systematic theology is really, quite literally, it's the process of doing that, kind of the science of studying those things, if you were to put it that way. And there's um, different ways to say there's, there's probably teachings that go a little broader than this. Sometimes we will pull our systematic... theologies into a comprehensive study. So Thomas Aquinas did this um, as he was requested. He said, this is summa theologica. This is the sum of all the Christian teaching that I think we need to have. So he's doing systematic theology in a way, and he was one of the first ones doing it in a way that's gathering it all together and saying, this is all of it. Uh, John Calvin did this as well, and his Institutes of the Christian Religion, he's gathering things together and saying, this is what I think is the broad, basic teaching of the Christian faith that we need to have. And so, uh, sometimes churches and organizations will do this too. They'll gather things together in confessions. And they'll gather them together in confessions of faith, uh, like the Westminster Confession would be an example of this that many churches will adhere to. We have our own confession. You can find it on our website or even out in the bookstore. We say that these are our articles of faith. And so we've kind of gathered together certain things. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be all of the Christians of the teaching faith, but there are at least certain things we've gathered together. And so when we think about doctrine, we're getting to this idea of you're doing systematic theology, the study of God's word, the study of God himself, and you're coming down and you're actually landing the plane a bit. And so doctrine would be the sense of you've now gotten to this idea of here is a teaching from God. Here is something that I know from Scripture. This is something that I could repeat. This is something that I could hold to. And so when uh, we think about that Thomas Watson quote, this is what he's talking about, getting it down to the level that you can grab hold of it. And so even the New City Catechism, that little kid's version, is really, really sweet when you think of this because it's taking massive amounts of theology, bringing it down to a very small term so I can bring it to my kids and so I can speak to maybe Liesl and say, Liesl, what is God? She's able to say, creator of everyone and everything. I'm like, yes, absolutely. Hold on to that. That's good. And so that's really what doctrine is. It's not as complex as it could be, but it really is for the church to be built up and edified. Um, Another word that you're going to see sometimes as you get into the study of doctrine, as you get into the study of God himself and of the church and all these things, is dogma. And so this is another one that kind of is off-putting in our culture today, because it's like, oh, dogmatic, that sounds too absolute. How dare you (laughs) say the word dogma? And so dogma, I mean, this is a less familiar one to me, but oftentimes you'll see that books will say these are the Reformed dogmatics. And the English word uh, that is used in, it'll come up in your Greek Bibles at times, and the English word that's used is often talking about a decree by someone. And so like if an emperor emperor was to give a decree, it would be a dogma. He would say, thus saith the emperor. And in a similar way, we are saying, thus saith 
the Lord and the Reformed camp especially, this is one of the things we will say often. Um, it is distilled down to this statement, God has said it. And they would often say this again and again. This is what we want to hold to, the things that God has said for the church to do. So dogmatics really is a broad general principle. We're, we're gathering many, many things together, and so God has said many things for the church, many things for our lives, many things about himself. And so dogmatics is a broad study. Doctrines tend to be a little bit more focused uh, in some senses for the church and for life in the church of what we're thinking there. And so as we enter in and we have these ideas for us, um, it is it does start to get just maybe a little bit clearer even as we define things to say, okay, the mountain's doable. I maybe <laughs> am able to enter in. So as far as doctrines or theology, um, yeah, what, is, what has been your guys' engagement with this? What is, what is your general, I mean, are these good words, bad words? How, how does this kind of land with you guys? I know I've been in different circles where it does land differently. Yeah, so positive, yeah. very positive, yeah. Very positive. Yeah, gives us some grounding. Yeah, Janet. Yeah. That has got to be probably one of the most powerful confessions ever put together because of the number of men for the length of time that they worked on that document. It is pretty unreal. Yeah. Any others? Yeah, Noah. Hmm. Right, right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. One of the first churches I worked at was very similar. It was like a almost a four letter word. <laughs> Even though there's more letters. <laughs> We just want to love Jesus. Yeah, James. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, they have emphases or maybe things that they're but not biblically based doctrines, which is kind of a, <laughs> a a strange idea. I can't quite put my mind around that, but it is probably true. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, if you have, I think you have this um, quote on your, I, I like this. This is from John Frame. Uh, one of the things he talks about when he mentions um, just this idea of theology and the, and the process of landing. And he's really getting at the, the process of landing at doctrines. One of the things he does that I think is quite helpful, um, he says the phrase sound doctrine, uh, referring to passages, you know, that would be like in Acts um, chapter 2, early chapters of Acts, First Timothy, uh, throughout there, like chapter 1, 2, it talks about sound doctrine. 
uh, and he says, the phrase sound doctrine in which sound is translated from the word hagianos, or rather health giving, the purpose of teaching is not merely to state objective truth, but to bring people to a state of spiritual health. It's kind of an interesting way to think of it, because oftentimes we just think, well, this is just objective truth. But as you get into good doctrine, one of the things you find is it is never outside of relationship to faith in God, outside of relationship to the growth of my own soul in that relationship. And so if you think of just general truths about God, it actually is an impossible task. And you watch people try and study scripture and doctrine, and it is actually uh, very, very difficult. And so I don't know exactly what is the nature of that, but I think John Frame tends to be right here to say that this is not meant to be done outside of the idea of you would grow. And so you certainly could state these things, but I think he has a point of what should it be is probably more where he's emphasizing. Thought? Yeah. Much of that is very much in life. <laughs> like it's lived doctrine very much. Um, so then he goes on, he says, Theology is the application of Scripture by persons to every area of life. Which just as James was saying, that is very much lived life to some degree. Yeah. Yeah, how I want to believe. Mm-hmm. Doing whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and there is certainly times when we think of uh, the way this works itself out. Um, one of the things I'd heard, I think it was Paul Tripp had said this. He, and I don't know that. Oh, sorry, Chase. Yes, I see that hand. <laughs> hmm. I like it. Maybe I like it. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Yeah. Study of God. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And I think that's a good emphasis, and I don't think John Frame would d disagree with that. But I think one of the things he's after is to say, is this, you know, a, a rote academic where it has nothing to do with real faith. And Bob Inc. would probably say the same thing, and many other guys would say, uh, this has to do with, uh, it has to be found in, in light of faith. So how do I understand God? It's through faith. God has been pleased to reveal these things to you, so how can you do doctrine? It's in the context of relationship and application. God is meaning you to understand. So there is probably nuance in what you're getting at, and I, and I do agree that, yeah, you can't just say, let's be introspective only and like self like navel gazing yeah it gets weird <laughs> we should be studying god's word for one yeah uh in good doctrine but it, he, i think he does make a good emphasis to remind us that this is not something that we can find outside of relationship to god i think quite literally like as you study god uh you can't do that outside of him being pleased to reveal himself with you so that that is very much a relational thing uh and there is at times we think of heady academics, and uh, there are times that people will know every, every doctrine you can imagine. They will have all the books, and then you go and look into their lives, and this is one of the stories Paul Tripp told was someone, and I've not actually met someone that was to this degree, but he said his life was just out of control, like his marriage was a mess, his kids were a mess, but he knew good doctrine. And, you know, that's not really what we want in general. And that's not what doctrine should do as we study it. And that's not what theology should do. Uh, so we do want to say um, it is the duty of the Christian to be 
established or settled in doctrine of faith, but that really does mean that your life is being formed and shaped by it. So as we enter in here, that's one of the things we should be thinking about it. Um, but there is, as we say the words dogmatics, as we say the word, there are absolute truths, as we say um, that there are things about the Bible that we can rightly and it is good to emphasize and hold to and say, let's bring these up to the forefront. Uh, our culture has a problem with this. Like it has a very severe problem with this, and it's not just recent. This has been going on for a long time. Uh, Thomas Jefferson said this. He said, creeds have been the bane and ruin, and creeds being just this establishment of doctrine into a, a statement. Creeds have been the bane and ruin of the Christian church. Its own fatal invention, which through so many ages made Christendom a slaughterhouse, and to this day divides it into castes of indistinguishable hatred of one another. Um, saying it much more blatantly than we've probably heard, but he is kind of hitting kind of the undertones often of our, of our culture at times to say we don't like statements like that. We don't like that. Uh, World Council of Churches, one of their slogans is, Doctrine divides, mission unites. Doctrine divides, mission unites. Kind of a sad slogan to have when you think of uh, the way that we're supposed to order our lives and where is that mission coming from. Uh, Peter Lee, uh, this is a, an Episcopal bishop in uh, Virginia, and this was said during a conference, actually one of their gatherings for the Episcopal Church, when they were coming together to um, ordain, I think it was the first, uh, I don't think they call it or ordination in the Episcopal Church, but I don't know what it is, but uh, they, were, they were bringing up for ordination, and, um, and it was the first, basically, um, gay priest, so it was a woman priest, and so he said this, because it was getting a little heated, as you can imagine, as that's coming up for the first time, he said, heresy is better than schism. If you must make a choice between heresy and schism, Always choose heresy. Always choose heresy. And he did go on to say, to his credit, well, I don't want either, but if I have to choose, <laughs> I'm going to choose heresy. And it kind of it should make your gut lurch a little bit to say, really? Like we're okay with just doing and saying whatever we want just to make people happy. Uh, and that really is a, a stark thing, but this is kind of undertones, even if people don't state it that strongly, this, these undertones do carry forward. Some of that stuff from Thomas Jefferson, the World Council of Churches, you start to feel and hear these things pretty regularly. I know I did, and at times when I ran into it for the first time, I'm like, where did this come from? And I never saw it that blatantly. Usually people aren't that comfortable with it, and it is very uh, disorienting. So these are very... Um, liberal veins of resistance. They are very extreme. But this also exists, as you've probably experienced it, that the resistance to sound doctrine, the resistance to doctrine in general, comes in a more conservative vein oftentimes. Alexander Campbell, he was during the, uh, the Great Awakening, during the 18th century. He was a Scots-Irishman, and he would have been known as part of the Disciples of Christ, uh, the Church of Christ, the Restoration Movement. If you're reading church history, that's where you'd find him. And he is one of these guys who actually was the guys who kind of coined the term, no creed but the Bible. No creed but Christ, no creed but the Bible. Somewhat famous, uh, like you, that should ring a bell a little bit at least. You've probably heard that statement. Um, and one of the things he says, and this is much more subtle, he says, no headquarters but heaven, no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible, no plea but the gospel, and no name but the divine. And in our culture, that'll preach. People get excited about that. Like, that doesn't sound too heretical. Like, but the fruit of it, like we've often seen, is, is soft and mushy at best, and it moves, and it doesn't actually establish church as well. And you start to hear what he's after sounds good, but it really isn't good. Because what he's saying is we don't want to know the real Christ. Yeah. We are creatures of God. Mm -hmm. we, want, we want to live. Like we don't need to be able to just do the way we want. Yeah. So if you have nothing established, you keep lying. You could just say, oh, no, this is yeah. 
right. Yeah. Yeah, the deep longings of our soul, at least, would say, <laughs> the rebellion of our soul would say, I don't want any of it. But I think we really are settled or at peace, probably, in our soul to say, I know who I'm supposed to be. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know what God requires of me. And so it's not as negative as it sounds, even though, like, the world is kind of, you know, pulling its head back against it. Kevin, yeah. Yeah, that little phrase, like, that's what the Bible says, but. <laughs> yeah, probably a lot of errors have come right after that statement. <laughs> I would agree with that. Yeah, Noah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, this kind of probably leads into, like, how do these changes start to happen? Um, Samuel Miller, uh, he was uh, at Princeton when it was conservative, which may seem like a long time ago, but it was at one point. Uh, and he was a Presbyterian minister and an academic there. So he says this, he says, Whenever a group of men begin to slide with respect to orthodoxy, they generally attempt to break, if not conceal their fall, by declaring against creeds and confessions. They have seldom failed, indeed, to protest in the beginning that they had no objection, objection to the doctrines themselves or the confessions which they had subscribed, but to the principle of subscribing at all. If you hear what he's saying there, it's, it's like, we're okay with the doctrine, we're okay that the doctrine exists. I just don't know that we should fully have to subscribe to it. Like, it can be there. And this kind of gives us a glimpse into the beginnings of what we're fairly aware of in the church at this point, but we've forgotten about it, is postmodern ideologies and postmodern thinking. Uh, you started to see even in moments like this, and we still have it with us today, to say, you can hold your truth over there, but don't bring it over here. Uh, and it gets more, it shifts a little and changes a little. And so many of us will remember like when postmodernism started to become a thing, the church was like, what is this? How do we deal with it? It's coming up in our youth. Uh, what do we do? And it became a very uh, central topic for the church to start to discuss. And some were grabbing onto it wholesale. Others were fighting and lashing back. So this became a, a popular debate. And it almost sounded like, well, it's settled now. Like, let's move on to the next era. And it's like, well, these things don't just go away like that. Modernity and some of the things of modernity haven't gone away. They're still with us. And post-modernity uh, is still with us to a large degree. And so as we think about these things, we still uh, recognize the fruits of them. And these really are just movements towards a secular world uh, in different ways. And to say, like, how do we move away from belief in religion and God to the secular? And they're trying to process how do you make sense of the world and life outside of those in different ways. And so there's many people that would kind of be the grassroots of these. But these really are kind of social constructs and concepts that just don't develop. Like oftentimes we want to say, well, that's where it started or that's where it started. That's where it is. But it's, it's much more difficult to pin down than that. It just kind of moves and grows, and you're like, ah, oh, there it is. And so there are some helpful ways you can identify it, but it's actually fairly difficult to, to really pin down, and that's the, the tricky nature of it and why you don't actually hear much about it anymore because it's like, well, it seems like it went away, but <laughs> now let's go focus on something else. I don't know, but uh, there is something helpful for us just to be kind of aware of what these things were, and I'll focus mostly just on postmodern in our postmodern backdrop, especially as it comes to doctrine, because modern ideologies didn't quite have the same problems, because it was a little bit as, uh, it was, I mean, it's kind of the, 
the outworking of humanism to say like there's a triumph of man and so it's much more okay with objective truth to some degree in general but postmodern has a little more of a of a problem when you want to say here's a statement of doctrine um so postmodern if you were to give kind of a an image of like what the youth were like and what the ideologies kind of look like in a group of people I remember someone um, from Washington University uh, he was doing intervarsity there described a, a group of kids who were on campus that he was talking to and he was and he said I've seen this in multiple contexts and I think it describes it well uh, he said as I spoke with them for quite a while they had no idealism they were reluctant to commit themselves, irreverent to anything sacred, disrespectful of all authority, apathetic, skeptical, and bored. And I think this is a good description of the type of people that hold to this worldview and are start to grab onto it as you start to think of this. And it's really, um, I mean, at moments you can say, like, man, I can recognize where these things kind of sneak in to one degree or another in my, my own way of thinking and just being aware of them. And we recognize that uh, the United States is really a powerful force in the secularization of the world. Um, it's very, very powerful. Uh, it's, and it's within uh, the world we live in. It more and more it's kind of becoming the air we breathe to hear these things because it's so strong through media and these channels. And so it's, it's, it moves fairly quickly in that sense, but it is not something to make us fearful. We have the word of God and doctrine, but it's just to be aware of it and to say, this is the challenge of the gospel in our age. This is the challenge of sharing the gospel, and it doesn't make us run and, and flee from it. But there are some telling things. In a recent poll, I just saw this just the other day, just come out, um, uh, the speaking of kind of where we're at 50 years ago, thinking about the number of Christians who are in our world. And you have this on your sheets. Uh, any guesses on how many, what percentage would have claimed Christianity? And these polls are obviously not saying what kind of Christians, but which would claim Christianity? A little higher. Yeah. Pretty close. So they, they said they saw 90%. And so we come to 2020, and this is where the, the new study comes out. Uh, any guesses on where we've gotten to? Not 25, who's? 50? We're, we're approaching it, so it, they said $1. We're about uh, 64% is what they said. Um, and so one of the things, obviously, they just make a straight line, and they're saying, like, this is where we're heading. I mean, there's other polls in the worldwide picture that Christianity is actually on the rise to some degree. So uh, maybe, I mean, Christian. Christianity in America, it's a, it's a hard place to be as a Christian. Sometimes we feel that pressure. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. 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 Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, it is. This is one of those, right there is one of those areas that I am so thankful that we're not, one, dependent on polls for the kingdom of God. Uh, the other is that I'm not, um, yeah, I don't have to judge and discern all of people's hearts. But it is helpful just to look at and just get a glimpse. And, and there is some way of just being skeptical of data to say, like, I, I'm not basing everything I do based on statistics. Like, it's, the kingdom of God has great optimism. So even as you hear something like this, kind of sets heavy, and you're like, ah, what's the hope? <laughs> Let's just hunker down. And yet, Scripture speaks very, very differently, and it was during a time, oftentimes when it was written, when it probably felt far more hopeless. So, uh, and it, God preserves His church. So this is not to give us um, kind of a downer <laughs> view of things, but it is, a, it is something to recognize that, I mean, the general cultural attitude is post-Christian. We have to learn how to think about that even as we think about doctrine. Yeah, Steve. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. There's, what's that? Right. 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 Yeah. No, it. It is. Uh, you know, it's it's something to be aware of, and it it's the context in which we, the church, really has the opportunity to minister to these people very strongly. And so there is a challenge, though, when it's. People are at home. I mean, you even see it in marketing plays now. It's like this, the, the door-to-door uh, marketing has come back. And you're like, because they want <laughs> to get to people. Um, so some of the characteristics, we'll just look at this really briefly just as we move into this next section. But uh, there's, there's a couple of ways you can identify uh, postmodernism because um, it, it is kind of hard to know what are we thinking about, like, Oftentimes, when I heard about it when it was first coming out, it was like, it was just bad. We don't know what it is, but it's bad. <laughs> uh, so a couple of ways you see this pretty, like there's, there's moments of takeaway, is in style, in language, and in philosophy, the way that uh, the thinking would enter in here. So style, um, you look at postmodern things and postmodern art, architecture, uh, the way that, you know, dress, all these things, the way that culture is formed in these, in these ways. Uh, there's, there's an indifference within postmodern thinking to context, consistency, continuity, and it splices genre, attitudes, and style. So things that used to be boundaries to say, like, that's, this works well together, the way that you design buildings or dress, and it just says nothing matters. There's no boundaries. No one can tell me what to believe about what is right and wrong. I'm just going to mix it all together. And there's no real rules in that sense. Um, an example in architecture is you look at uh, the Louvre. Uh, it's, an, it's actually like famous now for this piece that really doesn't fit at all. You know that glass pyramid on the front of it? Uh, like the, the backdrop to the entry of the museum was just this beautiful architectural building. And at some point during kind of the rise of postmodernism, uh, this architect got in there and just plopped this big glass structure in the middle of it. And it's like, if you think of guys in architecture, they're just like, if they, if they have, if they're not moving towards this postmodern view, they're like, I hate it. It doesn't fit. That might work somewhere else, but it does not fit the architectural scheme here. And it's all glass, like you walk into it, and they don't even care for the comfort of human. It's just hot and awkward and all these different things. It's just a total disregard for people, it's a total disregard for the rules of how you do architecture, how you think about these things. And you th- see this oftentimes in architecture, you see this in culture throughout, and that's just an example of how these things work themselves out. And in language, we see this even still today, where we recognize that um, how do you um, speak about something that you are not a part of? And postmodernism would say you can't speak into anyone's life outside of your own. Like it is very individualized to the point of it, it's a very, very extreme on the one end of the spectrum. And so it's, it's very, very difficult to speak. Yeah. Oh, with the Louvre? Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of an interesting, I mean, it, you look at it, it's interesting, but it's, <laughs> it's kind of a weird architectural piece, yeah. Right, right. Um, and so language, one of the things that becomes really interesting is there's a, there's a nature of humanity. Like we, we do share a common humanity, and there is a, a view of transcendent thought of God can speak down into our world and speak things that apply to all people everywhere. And the postmodern would say, no, you can't those lines. So it blurs the lines in style, but it says you can't speak into my world uh, 
outside of it. So doctrine, obviously, you can imagine, becomes very, very offensive in this type of world. Yeah. probably a little bit of blend of ideologies there, but the postmodern is kind of saying ultimate individuality. And so like if someone was to say, well, I'm a you know, white Anglo male, I would say no one else can speak into that. Um, and it also kind of says, I don't want anyone else to speak. And in ours, it's, there's like a blending of to say, like I, I get to speak in certain circumstances, I get to cross that boundary, but not in others. Um, so the postmodern ideology is one that says we don't cross those lines but there's multiple coming out in what you're getting out of. Like sometimes people do, and that's because we're not exclusively postmodern, but the idea of postmodernity is saying don't, don't cross it ever. So um, in philosophy, like how do we know things? There's a, there's a certain sense of like you can't know, it's kind of depressing, you can't know anything really. Like it just is. <laughs> it just is. You can't really know anything. And so... Um, you know, you can get into many, many studies and post-modernity, but as you think about these things, there's quite a lot of influence of why do these statements come? Like, we don't want doctrine, we don't want confessions, we don't want creeds. These are hateful and not good. Uh, there's a backdrop to that, and it's been developing for a very, very long time. And so just to, to recognize where we're at, as we even seek as a church to study doctrine, there's going to be at moments... Um, if we've learned to love God's word, we say yes, but quite naturally in our culture, it's going to be, this is heady and academic. We don't want it. <laughs> and this, there's a reason for that. So as we think about grounding ourselves in scripture and doctrine, we also want to think about what is the appropriate nature of this. Um, scripture itself will say doctrine is good. It speaks in doctrines. Deuteronomy 6.4 would be an example of this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What is that stating? That states something very specifically to the people of God. Who is God? There's one God, <laughs> and this is who he is. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. So that tells you something very specific you can hold on to. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, um, if you have your Bibles, verses 3 to 5. He says this, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. And, uh, the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 really establishes much of this, and you can see this again and again in Scripture, that truths like that, that are of first importance, that are highlighted to say, believe this, hold this. What did Jesus teach to you? You are to hold on to these things. You're to be grounded in these things. The Apostle Paul is not afraid of this. Jesus wasn't afraid of this. Doctrine is really quite evident throughout Scripture. Um, and this is <clears throat> something that <clears throat> uh, God constantly does. And, and we often think like, the world of Christianity should be experiential, but this is not what Scripture teaches. It says, much of the gospel is fought first in your mind. The Apostle Paul says, don't be conformed to the world, which is action and living, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There is an understanding of the gospel that comes first in through our understanding, our, our knowledge so these doctrines are, are things we really do want to be able to hold to. Um, we shouldn't only just come to the Bible and say, let me just read the Bible, that's all I want. But there are things in Scripture that are very clearly identified as primary, taught these things of first importance. The, 
the Gospels come together and they say, what is the good news of this entire redemptive plan? There is a narrative structure about Scripture that says, here are emphases. And so we say, what are the doctrines of the Christian faith? It's not just, well, just read your Bible. It's, let me distill these down to moments. And Jesus entering in becomes one of these moments you say, that's a very important doctrine, <laughs> who Jesus is. Sin is a very important doctrine. What happened? As you see these moments, we can distill them and say, there is an emphasis in Scripture for us to be able to grab hold of. It uh, doesn't mean we rip it out of its context. doesn't mean we seek to misunderstand it. But there is something that Scripture does and brings it down to a point, And there is a responsibility for us. And it's not just good and true things, just random good and true things. But they are directive. It's saying, who should you be? Who is your God? How should you live? What is sin? What is right? What is wrong? Like, like there are doctrines that really formulate the way we think about these things and, and direct us. Uh, Herman Bavinck, a uh, theologian that I like to read, um, translated work, but he says this. He says, the church of Christ, therefore, has a responsibility, thinking of doctrine and dogma, has a responsibility with respect to dogma, to preserve, explain, understand, and defend the truth of God entrusted to her. The church is called to appropriate it mentally, to assimilate it internally, and to profess it in the midst of the world as the truth of God. The power of the church to lay down dogmas is not sovereign and legislative. It is the power of service to and for the word of God. When you hear this, we are responsible to it. God's word has been given to you. You don't get to reshape, remake, reform it. You're responsible to it as kind of a, I, I bring this on behalf of God. <laughs> I don't get to legislate it or create it. And oftentimes when we don't have doctrine, that's what we're actually doing without saying it. To say, I'm coming up with what I think are the most important things. I'm coming up with what I think are the emphases. Um, So there is a, a question as we think about doctrine. One, how does it help me? And as we think of the secularization of our world... Um, <clears throat> it doesn't land the plane of how do you bring doctrine to the world. There's, there's certainly wisdom that we can use about how we do that so that people can hear it and know it. There's a responsibility to do it. Uh, but there's also something for us to say, just because the world doesn't want to hear it doesn't mean you don't believe it. It's like we will hold these things as a church. We will believe these things as the church. And we will proclaim these things as the church. And really, all of the doctrines of God should fit under the banner of, this is good. (laughs) Like you had said very early on, Barry, like these things should feel good. And so we don't want to just say like these, they should be evil and wrong to you. Like we should want to bring people back and say, see the beauty of them, not the harm of them. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing. In all things, I mean, exactly what you're saying. The Christians should not seek to (coughs) stiff-arm people (coughs) with dogmatic statements. You know, we want to hold to specific truths, but we we do need to do it in a way that's 
the way Jesus did, very caring and loving, but it's not changing, <laughs> not moving. So a couple of things as we close here, uh, we're going to do a study. You have the <coughs> kind of, <coughs> excuse me, the outline of what we're, where we're going. So there's 12 weeks here, starting with scripture, moving into doctrine of God, creation, sin, the covenant of grace, the Son, salvation, <coughs> the Holy Spirit, and eternity. And there are certainly many, many more things we could hit. So this is just some, some major doctrines that we're going to go through and kind of hit, hit here. And so a couple of things. You can come to Sunday morning and just engage, just, just engage with what's happening here. You can also go home, take this list, and say, I'm going to study what we're looking at the week that we're going to look at. And so here's some resources that you have here. I'll just mention these really quick. In the back of this, there's some brief introductions on doctrine that are very helpful. They're, they're concise. They're well-written. They're by um, very, all of the articles in here are by like top-level scholars. And so you're getting all of their knowledge condensed and brought to you like on a silver platter. So don't ignore the ESV Study Bible. Um, and then another one we've used at GCF for many years is Bible Doctrine. Very, very clear, very easily accessible. Um, there's much more to be said and sometimes better ways to say the things that he has in here because, you know, you get big books like that that, that are processing it a lot more. But this is not something to ignore. It, it's very clear and easily accessible. Uh, another one is this book by Paul Tripp, Do You Believe? So this is very much, if you don't like doctrine and heady things, he does a great job of entering in just in a very practical pastoral way. And so if it helps, that's a good place to go. And he's, he's thinking in different, different ways than theologians usually think, but he's still engaging with doctrine. So he's going through some major doctrines um, that will help you here as we study these things. Um, another one is just the stuff we use regularly, the New City Catechism. Um, these, these are doctrines. These are things that there's quite a lot there just on a very base level as you think about these even with your own families. And then the Westminster Confession. I mean, this is a robust book with tons of scriptural backing. So don't, at times you can look at this and just glaze over it because it doesn't have as many words. But this is probably one of the most robust books I've ever read of doctrine and theology in that sense. So I don't always understand everything that they're getting at, but you have to do a little work to, to figure that out. So those are a couple of things for you just as we study here. So let's do close in prayer this morning. Father God, I do thank you just for the privilege to be able to study doctrine, that you have given these things to us that we can hold on to them and be established in them. Lord, I pray as a church as we seek to do this, would you help us shape and form one another to be established in these things, to motivate one another to trust these things, and that we could do the work needed to get our minds around these, these things that are of you. Um, and Lord, we, we trust you. We know that you help us in all of these things as we may even have uncertainty when it comes to approaching big doctrines. So Lord, we lift this up before you. We pray that all that we seek to study and do is glorifying to you and done in a humble manner. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.